Welcome to Which Side Do You Want, where we talk all things tennis. I'm your co-host, Ruffin Thornton, and I'll be joined by my good friend, James Skinner. Unlike most tennis podcasts, we cover hot topics, from the lawns to the concrete, from the pros to the park, and all things in between. Welcome to Which Side Do You Want? All right, welcome back, tennis fans, for this week's episode. Uh, James and I have some interesting things to discuss about what we're going to be calling the end of an era with a question mark, because we're not quite sure if the era has or is ending. Uh, But before we get started with that topic, a couple of tournaments that are currently going on. Uh, In Rotterdam, we've got the ABN Amro World Tennis Tournaments, both the men's and women's event. Uh, On the men's side, we've got the Dallas Open, which is uh, happening in the U.S. And uh, down in South America, you've got the Argentina Open, uh, which Delpo uh, might uh, have played his last match. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Also, on the women's side, you've got um, St. Petersburg event uh, going on right now. So those are a couple of things that are currently happening uh, in tennis today. Over the Last two decades, we've been privileged to see about uh, the most exciting tennis yeah. a- athletes and personalities in the history of the sport. Okay. So, uh, James, first of all, how are you doing? This hey, Ruffin, I'm doing fine. Doing fine. Good, good. So what do you think about what we've witnessed uh, with uh, this potential end of an era over the last few years? Well, it's... <laughs> They've been talking about it for a long time. Right. And these players, they just continue to play and they're still competitive. So um, it, it's been it's an end of an era, but it's been an end of an era for quite some time. So for, for a little bit of a <laughs> they haven't they, they seem to be going out slowly. And but to me, I'm I'm happy. I I still love to watch these players right. uh do their thing on the court. And as long as they're able to do it and are still competitive, I say go for it. Keep playing. Keep we playing. love we love seeing you. So here's the here's the end of the era um, topic that I, I'm talking about. So the big three we know we've seen these guys play for. Roger has been playing since early uh, the late '90s, um, but he's been dominant really since uh, when he took over as number one player of the world from. Uh, Leighton Hewitt, uh, about 2003, 2004. Um, Roger, Rafa, and Novak have been dominant over the last 15 to 20 years. Um, on the women's side, we've also had similar dominance, but not quite as as consistent with Venus and Serena. First, Venus started out when she became number one player in the world. Then Serena picking up where Venus left off and just taking it on to where she's now considered the GOAT. Um, we also have a couple of other players who are part of this historic uh, run that we've seen that are contemplating retirement. For uh, So I mentioned the Argentina Open. Uh, Juan Martin Delpo, who's coming back from several knee surgeries, he had a wrist injury before that, um, is potentially uh, playing his last or final matches. Uh, he just played in the Argentina Open, like I just said. Um, he he lost to a good opponent uh, in Fred, Federico Del Bonis, um, but he at the end of the match it looked like he may be ending 
uh, hanging up his his strings to call it a career. Uh, Also, we know um, Andy Murray, who also has battled serious injury with his hip uh, and uh, back injuries, um, has contemplated uh, ending his career, but he's still giving it the old college try. Uh, Also, on the on the women's side, we know that Angelique Kerber has talked about um, potentially ending her career sometime this year. Elise Cornet, Joanna Conta. also have have mentioned uh, talking about retirement. Uh, when we think about it, uh, we've also seen a few other players, both on the men's and women's side, uh, actually hang it up. For instance, uh, Jurgen Melzer, he actually ended his career uh, recently. Alexander Dogopolov, we don't rem- we we forget about him. He was an exciting player. Uh, a couple years ago, he's dealt with also some uh, some major injuries. Uh, he called it a career last year. Thirty two years old. Thirty two years old. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, you know, uh, back in the day, maybe in the in the eighties and nineties, you know, if you got into your thirties, you were calling it a career. Now, yeah. with the advent of the likes of a Roger and a Rafa and a Novak, and as well as Venus and Serena, we're pushing these players. Um, th- these players are pushing the sport well into their <laughs> late 30s and early 40s. Yeah. Um, for instance, James, you remember Eunice Elinawi? Yes. Oh, you know, gosh. Yeah. Major. You know, a, big serving volley. Big serving volley from Morocco. Yeah. He uh, had a couple of classic battles with Andy Roddick right. back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> back in the day. He used to be a, a bus driver for the players <laughs> before he <laughs> really got his chance. Yeah. yeah. Um, he played till he was 47 yeah. on the men's wow. side. Can you Amazing. imagine playing 40, when you're 47? Yeah. Um, we we don't think about it, but John McEnroe also, back in his heyday, played till he was 46, still playing singles. Um, he was a really a good doubles player. He could have played as long as he wanted with with doubles. In fact, I believe he probably would have been the the men's best doubles player on right. Davis Cup for a long time, even <laughs> yeah, into the into the late nineties. Yeah, they had a record that. Wow. That, yeah, they were almost unbeatable, especially when yeah. playing for their country. Uh, Ken Roswell, he played till he was 46. That's just a few players yeah. that played a long, long time on the men's side. That's right. He made two Grand Slam finals in his 40s. That is amazing. That is amazing. <laughs> uh, he didn't win those, right? No, you know, he but, got beat badly. But, but still, still made it. <laughs> made it. That's, that, that's the interesting thing. We And we remember Jimmy Connors back in the early 90s. You know, he had that deep run where he got to the quarterfinals. Yeah, 39. At 39. <laughs> at 39, we're talking about a player getting to the quarters. Right. Well, we expect now the likes of Roger getting to the finals. We're ex- if Even when he comes back, we're, we're expecting him to do well at Wimbledon because yeah. that's what he's got targeted. Um, and just one thing, Ruff, though, just we ought to keep this in perspective. These are athletic years. Okay. Right. These are professional athlete years, which are. Not as long as because somebody retiring at 32 or 37 or 40, they're still young. Right. That's right. And if they've had a good career, they are young and they're wealthy. Yes. And they'll spend many, many more years, 50 or 60 years of their lives are going to be spent well. Right. But uh, just as far as their peak performance on the athletic stage, you know, the, the clock. That, ticked on, that's, ticked a, that's a really good point, you know. Being at the top of your game 
well into your late 30s and potentially 40s is amazing by today's standards and today's athletes. Um, we got to give some uh, some love to the ladies as well. We we forget that Martina Navratilova played until she was 49 on the single side. And she actually played into her 50s, winning a Grand Slam tournament with uh, one of the Bryan brothers. Bryan brothers, right. Um, so you can imagine, you know, talking about expanding the length of your career where you can still compete at the highest level and compete for grand slams into your fifties. Um, Kamiko Date, she actually stopped playing for about 12 years and um, came back and played and, and was competitive with people half her age um, until she was 47. So, you know, we got to think, um, you still don't, you still can play at a very, very high level. But when we're talking about the best athletes in the world, that's, that's really, really rare. The longevity of the sport uh, is amazing when you figure you can play well into your forties. Uh, like, like I said, with the likes of Billie Jean King playing until she was 47. So it's not impossible, but it's, it's really hard. Yeah. Um, I, you know, one thing I was going to say, Ruff, is that for that to happen, you you have to have a lot of things that have to go in your favor. Mm-hmm. Too, you have to you have to not get a major injury, right? Um, or you also have to um, be smart about your tennis. A lot of times, they I remember when Venus and Serena were playing, and they would take breaks where they wouldn't play tournament, they wouldn't play a full schedule. And people said, "Well, why aren't you playing full schedule?" Well, they lasted a long time at the top of the game because they were smart about, you know, taxing their bodies. And, uh, and I think you have to know your body, um, and technology now and better conditioning, uh, the physical matrix that these athletes go through at the highest mm-hmm. levels now are helping to prolong their lives, uh, not their, but their tennis lives, their prof- not their physical lives, but their athletic lives. And I think these are a lot of the things that we're going to see more of this, but still, you know, you still have to uh, make sure that you don't have that big injury. Right. And if you don't have that yeah. big injury uh, or that debil- that nagging injury, a lot of these players retire because they just had injuries that just would not heal. And um, Delpo is one of them. You right. know, he's had injuries that just could not, you know, he just couldn't get and play his best. Not that he couldn't play. He could play the game, but you can't play if you're hurt. Yeah, that, that's a good point because uh, – we don't think we don't really realize it, but tennis is one of those true sports that's played almost year round. Exactly. They play. They actually play uh, depending on how the calendar year goes. They'll play from the be- the beginning or the end of December, um, go through the new year and they'll play straight. There's always an event going on always. from January until the end of November. Never. With some kind of event, whether it be a, a small tournament, a Grand Slam tournament, some team competition, and that, like like I said, that's a really good point that the athletes have to be smart about overworking themselves right. because if they don't, they're going to have a short career and they're not going to have the the ability to to play well into their thirties and late forties because. Right. 
they've overworked themselves. We don't think about the mental aspect, although exactly. we're talking more, more and more in the sports lexicon now where, uh, you know, the mental health or mental aspect sure. of the sport is um, very, very tough. Uh, you know, just playing the match itself is draining. draining. Can you imagine yep. what it's like to play seven matches over the course of two weeks? And this is just in singles. Some yes. people still play singles and doubles. That's right. yeah. um, and it's it's and such no, a... There are no gimmies. Right. There are no gimmies. And it's such a, uh, a tense mindset. It's, it's very draining. You, you look at players like Naomi Osaka. She is absolutely drained. And, you know, we got to applaud her ability to go back out there even when she's uncomfortable. You know, we talk about her not being comfortable in front of a camera or, you know, doing an interview, but actually playing on the court can also drain you. You know, if you're, if you're actually playing the sport, you know what it's like. So, you know, to be a fan, we think, Oh, wow. These, we, we praise these athletes, but at the end of the day, they sacrifice a lot. They, they gain a lot if they're successful, but yes. they sacrifice a lot as well. And that's just the top players. We're not even talking about those players that are nine ninety nine in the world to one hundred. They're playing year round. Too. They're playing year they're round. Playing they're challengers. Playing. They're playing all these futures matches because they need points. They need right. to get those points so that they can get into some of the bigger tournaments and so get they the can bigger paydays, payday, and yeah. they can sustain or continue their careers because without them. It's an expensive sport, and if you don't have the sponsorship, if you don't have the payday from the tournaments, you're not going to make it. So a lot of them have to play tournament after tournament in these small little tournaments for, you know, $5,000 here, $1,500, you know, for just, just – and they have to do that to sustain themselves until hopefully they can get a big break. Absolutely. By the end of, you know, the calendar year, you've played a whole oh, lot of tennis yeah. and hoping that you might get in or qualify – uh, for a main draw of a big event. Sure. And again, if you're playing these many tournaments, that's only, you only get those big paydays from these small events if you make it to the finals or if you make it to the semifinals. If you lose in the first round because you played a tough opponent or you just had a bad day, and please tell me this, we do have bad days and the <laughs> athletes have bad days, you might be bounced out of there and your winnings might not even cover your expenses your hotel expenses. Exactly. I mean, yeah. we don't we don't really think about it. it. It's a tough. It's really really tough being a professional athlete. Um, on that same note, I'd like to uh, tell you a story about um, one of my tennis men- teaching tennis mentors, Juni uh, Chapman. Uh, I remember seeing him giving it. Okay, a, one thing rough. Go ahead. Tell the audience who Juni Chapman. Okay, was. so just to. To give uh, our audience a a little bit of insight, Junie Chapman was um, uh, a young, really, really good tennis player coming out of the the city of Richmond back in the 70s, right after Arthur Ashe was really big um, uh, on the international scene. So we had a couple of players coming from Central Virginia. Junie Chapman was one. Rodney Harmon was also another. He's also... Um, a, a national figure. He's been the. He was actually Olympic coach a while ago. But anyway, let me get back to Junie. So Junie gave it a college try. He spent. Um, he he played his collegiate career at UNC. Um, he gave it a try uh, on tour, but he didn't have a lot of weapons. But he was an excellent doubles player. So he played doubles for most of his professional career. 
he's got to win over Jimmy Connors. Most people don't know that. Really good player. Um, but I remember seeing Junie give it his last try to, to see if he could really make it on the on tour. And um, I remember seeing him out at a place called Bird Park in the city of Richmond. And he's just running drill after drill after drill after drill till you would think that he has no more energy. He'd take a break and come right back and do it more and more and more. And to see that kind of effort to just make it on tour. And again, Junie is a really, really, really good doubles player. But as a singles player, you have to be, you have to have something special. You got to have speed or consistency or big weapon um, and not to say that you can't make it without all of those, but it helps, especially into with the the com- how competitive the sport is now. And um, so, you know, to make it, you really have to be very, very talented. So when we talk about the longevity of the players that we've seen, you have to understand these players, not only were they very, very talented, but they were also lucky enough and uh, had the the work ethic to be and do this for such a long time. This is why the end of this era is going to be, we, we, we got to be thankful for what we've seen over the last two decades, but you got to realize that we are li- not likely to see this again. You know, James mentioned in the last episode that Rafa's streak of Grand Slam tournaments not going to be, duplicated and not at least in our lifetime and probably never in human history but you know we can't see the future but uh, you know james you want to add on anything i i know i can i could concur with everything you said um we have to understand that these are supreme athletes and uh and we talked about the mental aspect of the game i think that is vital and important and when we look at the players I remember going to see a, um, a futures event on, um, one time in North Carolina, and uh, I was watching the players play. And these are players that we never heard of. They're like ranked 200, 300, maybe even four or 500 uh, on the tennis ATP uh, ranking. And then I'm watching them play tennis, and they're phenomenal tennis players. I mean, all of them have the strokes, and I'm like, wow. So I was thinking to myself, what separates these players from the top players? Because when I'm watching them hit their forehands, their forehands are flawless. I'm watching them hit their backhands, they're flawless. I'm watching them hit serves, pound serves out. I mean, play it. But that mental aspect of the game, your ability to play consistently at that high level, and like Ruff said, over a two-week period, seven matches over a two-week period, that's what separates the great from the good. Because the good, they may have a win here and there, but, you know, that's going to be it. But the greats, they consistently are there at the top. That's what makes uh, what Rafa Nadal and, and Roger Federer and, and Djokovic and Murray and all these other top players uh, makes them so phenomenal, their achievement. Right. And it's just difficult because these are the best of the best of the best going at each other tooth and nail, day in, day out. And they've been doing it since they were all top juniors. Right. And we're not we're not talking about top juniors like 10, 11. We're talking 
you know, the likes of Roger had a racket in his hand when he was three and four years old and he's been doing it all his life. So, yeah. Uh, can you imagine doing something this long? We, you know, we're uh, I'm going to throw in some football um, right now the because Tom, Tom, uh, this is right before the Super Bowl. Tom Brady is retiring from the NFL and we're talking about him playing at 45. Well, imagine if you're at the top of your game and you're, you're approaching 50 like Nar- Martina Navratilova. And at that point, she was considered the greatest tennis player or yeah. was one of the greatest tennis yeah. players. So, um, you know. You and know, the, the, you also it, have to love the game, too. Right. I think and, all of these people, they love this game. Right. I mean, Roger Federer, you can tell he loves tennis. I mean, and Martina, she loves, loves tennis. tennis. Yeah. And I think there's nothing they would not – want to be doing other than being in a competitive tennis match. And, um, you know, that's, that's part of it too. Right. You know, and that's, that's another thing. That's again, a real good point. The love of the sport is actually what's going to sustain you throughout your career. But even when your career is sustaining you from your love, guess what? It's a job to them. Yes. Most of us after 20, 30 years with the same job, you you lose interest or you lose the same passion. So, you know, again, when we talk about the, the fact that these players have done it so long, so consistently at such a high level, we have got to thank our lucky stars that we have seen this level of talent for such a long time. Again, uh, you think about some of the players that we saw in the 90s, Pete Sampras on the men's side, Andre Agassi, Jim Courier. That was it for a decade. Before that, Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe, uh, Vitas Gerolaitis, Bjorn Borg, Borg, just the 80s. I mean, some of the players, uh, we're mentioning men's, uh, you know, the Ivan Lindels, the the Yannick Noahs, the the Mats, uh, Mats Vlanders, they only dominated for 10 years at best. Here, we've been privileged for two decades. Like I said, Roger started this out in the 90s. You know, we knew he was good, but he made a big splash when he took out Pete Sampras at Wimbledon. And we've heard his name ever since. You know, when he, like I said, when he dominated uh, and took over from uh, Leighton Hewitt as number one player in the world, he never looked back. And we've been... We've been witnessing greatness ever since. And like I said, we we really should count our blessings and hopefully we can see the next young generation do just as well, if not better. And I, I just also want to say, Ruffin, and um, tell everybody out there listening, that this is not a requiem. We're not we're not putting dirt on a grave. Right. right? We're just saying we're just saying that, you know, we see these players coming to the end. Uh, they're not. They're not at the condition that they were at their prime, but who is? Um, and my feelings on this is if this is their, the time for them that they want to hang it up, I applaud them. But if they decide that they want to continue fighting and continue battling and they still have a love for the game, once again, I applaud them. Continue. I think too many times we want to lay these players to rest so quick. Or when are you going to retire? Is you about to retire? And and they still, maybe they still have a love for the game. Maybe they still want to continue to play. Maybe they still love the competition. 
And if they do and they can play at a competitive level and still be in the top, then continue on to play. Play right. until you're 40. Tell, play yeah. until you're 50 if you're still competitive. I don't, I don't get it. Let them, you know, and I think I feel more for them now the older I get. Because you understand that, you know, why should you be pushed out just because you've reached a certain age, especially if you still can play and get to the second week of a Grand Slam tournament and maybe even be a threat to win it. Yeah. Then you should still you should play as long as you want to play. As long as you can still raise that racket and beat the other person on the other side of the net. And you determine when when you're ready to retire. No one else determines that except you. So I applaud them. Keep fighting and battling as long as you want to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The game is better because you're in it. Yeah. And and the viewership have really reaped the benefits of seeing these players oh, play yeah. as long as they have. Mm-hmm. Um, we really again, I, I can't say it enough. We don't know how privileged we are to have witnessed this era for such a long time. That's it. Um so <laughs> the tournament uh, tournaments. You want you you want to make money at your tournament? Let Venus enter that tournament. Yeah, absolutely. Let Serena enter, enter that, that tournament. tournament. Let Roger enter that tournament. Arafa and ticket sales go up, go up. even today. You're right, even today. So, um, so <laughs> we got a couple more things that we want to talk about. Um, for our next segment, we're going to talk about some things that have happened uh, this month in tennis. So, James, I'm going to. Give well, it to you. Yeah, well, this is February, and uh, I know it's we celebrate Black History Month, but I'm, we're going to diverge. We're not going to really talk about a Black History Month thing right now. We'll get to that. That's a, another thing we're going to tackle down the road. But uh, this month in the year of 1900 was the date that the Davis Cup was started. And if you're not familiar with the Davis Cup today, it is an international competition tennis team uh, style tennis competition, but the uh, the silver trophy that is the uh, Davis Cup uh, today was first created for competition when American uh, collegiate tennis player Dwight F. Davis challenged some British tennis players to come across the sea, across the big the big pond, Atlantic Ocean, and play his Harvard College team. And to commemorate this event, I think they went to Tiffany's or somewhere. <laughs> because now we get remember now, right. tennis is in a, was at this in time the, was an elitist sport. sport. Yeah. These were gentlemen who were rich <laughs> and they had nothing but time, leisure time on their hand because around 1900, right. you know, very few people had the time to spend months playing a sport. They were working hard in factories or on farms or doing it. But the rich and elite, they were able to uh, play tennis. So yeah, we right. were, were grateful that they were because we have this sport because there were a lot because of rich people were, yeah. who had time to play tennis. Yeah. But uh, at this time, but um, it, they came across Atlantic and they played his Harvard team, Dwight, uh, Dwight F. Davis. And today, the Davis Cup is an international lawn tennis Challenge Trophy, uh, and it's commonly known as the premier uh, competition, international team, tennis team competition today. And uh, so that was uh, in February 1900. And uh, did not know that. Yep, yep. So we and we take it for granted. It was originally just a, a, a competition between the United States and Great Britain, right. and then they included Australia and. But these were all countries that had 
wealthy people who had the time to do it. It wasn't until the 19 uh, mid early 1920s, I think, is when they started bringing more and more countries in there. And you would have the likes of, of European countries like France would participate and even Japan participated in those early days. And it just grew. And then it got grew so much that they had to have different levels of it. So you couldn't all just couldn't play. You had to win a zonal level to qualify for the tournament. And um, but. Australia, um, United States have have the most titles, but that may change soon because I don't, I'm not sure when the United States is going to win it again. I'd like to see them put it together, but the international competition is just really tough. But right. 1900, February 1900, Davis Cup was was first started, first competition. Thank you, um, my brother. You, we're going to consider you our resident historian <laughs> on tennis. <laughs> okay. So. But that, 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 the cool thing is that, that that the original the trophy is the original trophy. The that Davis nice. Cup. They, they give the winners. They will get a replica of, of the, the Davis Cup, cup right. if you win the cup. I think the winners and the, and the runner ups get a replica of the cup. But the Davis Cup is still the Davis Cup that they you know and they have your team, your country etched on the side. That which is, is amazing. Cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well. All right. Well, tennis fans, that's all we got for this episode. Um, tune in. Uh, next week as we come up with some more exciting topics. Uh, you can also hit us up uh, at our uh, email address at wswytennis at gmail.com. That's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. <laughs> We're also on Twitter uh, at w, which side do you want? WSD Y W, uh, and we also have an Instagram account of the same name. Yeah, we're we uh, gonna get it together. Folks. Yeah, we, we will get it together. <laughs> it is a mouthful. Yeah, we gotta say mouthful. that a couple we, times. We gonna, yeah, we have to say it three times. But uh, again, we we thank you for listening, and hopefully, you'll hear from us again. Yes, go out and play right. some tennis, folks. Right. It's it's that time. It is that time. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>